0: Welcome to Focus on the Family's weekend broadcast. We hope the following program will challenge you and encourage you in your faith journey. Try to imagine this situation. You're the lead detective on a really important case. You're looking for clues to determine who, what, where, when, and why a crime has been committed. But the challenge is there's no evidence, or is there? Today on Focus on the Family, we're doing an investigation about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who appeared in human form on this planet more than 2,000 years ago. What is the evidence for him? Well, for his claims... Uh, You'll find out. Thanks for joining us today. Your host is Focus President and author Jim Daly, and I'm John Fuller.
1: John, I'm really excited to talk to our guest. I can remember I made that commitment to Christ at 15, and I wobbled along. Parents, be encouraged, uh, you know, that 15-year-old will continue to grow and develop. It was probably about 20 when I was in in college, sitting in my business classes, learning about economics and advertising and marketing and all those things, And I just unplugged, and I thought, I've got to read the Bible all the way through. And I just remember the Lord putting that on my heart, just the appetite to say, let's read it. When you think about it, it's great to go to school. It's great to go to college. But if you haven't read the Bible, the Word, and decided for yourself, is Jesus real? Is he who he said he was? You kind of miss the most important class of your life. Mm. So, I want to encourage you if you're kind of on the fence and you don't know or you have doubts, maybe you made a commitment, it was a long time ago. Um, Dig in today because I think our guest is going to deliver some great perspectives given his background.
0: Yeah, and Jay Warner Wallace has been involved in law enforcement for more than 25 years. He's a homicide detective always focused on the facts. In fact,
1: John, uh, he described himself as an actively sarcastic skeptic about God, faith, and the Bible. I love that perspective. Again, somebody who had an honest approach to saying, prove it and uh, we're going to get to that today. Uh, Jim, it's great to have you here. Well,
2: thanks for having me. Yeah, be- being sarcastic and skeptical <laughs> is really helpful as a homicide detective in general, now, right? This isn't so, what I was going to ask you, but how has the lord
1: dealt with your sarcasm?
2: Uh, so, so so if you assume up front that everyone you're talking to is a liar, some people will eventually go to jail, but if you if you assume everyone's telling you the truth, no one ever goes to jail. So I'm trying to balance what works and what's effective based on, and then also what what God would call me to be. You know, know, this is totally
1: off topic, but given Mm -hmm. all your years in detective work, I mean, what are those things that you see about human behavior that kind of you make, makes you scratch your head? Like, well, they really thought they'd get
2: away with this? Yeah, well, see, a lot of it is, you know, <laughs> we don't think really rationally when we think about doing things that are irrational, right. Right? Like, like killing your spouse. So, so a lot of times you're driven by your emotions and that's where we can kind of make some headway, yeah. right? Because sometimes we overthink it. We're thinking, well, look, if, if I was doing this, I might do these five things first, because we're thinking as though we're not in the middle of an emotional relationship that is driven by emotion, we're trying to think about it rationally and coolly, but it turns out most of the time. Um, but here's what I do see. Pretty much everything that I see in human behavior is explained really well on the pages of the New Testament. Oh, that's interesting. So I love the fact that the Bible describes the world the way it really is. And I'll be sometimes working with defense attorneys who, who they're so convinced that there's no way that their defendant, I mean, they're truly convinced that the defendant could not do this. Because for the last 30 years, I work cold cases. This guy has been a deacon in a church. He's been, you know, he's, he's a dentist. He, he's a fireman. Yeah, right. He's a, you know, he's a city council person. He's just got a regular life. Yeah. And because they don't understand the enigma of man, you know, the kind of fallen nature design in God's image, but deeply rebellious. They don't understand that dichotomy. They struggle with understanding how someone like this could do something like that. Mm.
1: Well, you know, and you know, what's interesting too, uh, so much of the culture right now is debating what's true, that there can't Mm. really be an absolute truth. Mm. But my goodness, where do you see that show up in police work? Oh, I mean, absolutely. you either did yeah. it
2: or you didn't do it, and that's absolute true. Well, and I always wonder: is this shift uh, from objective claims about truth to subjective claims about truth is this going to eventually affect us in the courtroom? And I've been watching. Wow, that's interesting. Court so you've cases. seen that evolution, yeah? Happening. Because oh. we're gonna, we're selecting jurors, and I think our questions in the voir process are going to uh, they always have kind of covered these issues, right? But I think more and more to be able to make to make sure that the jurors we're selecting actually understand that some things are more than a matter of opinion. Even the claim that there is no objective truth is a claim about Mm -hmm. truth that's objective. Right. So it's it's self-refuting. So we have to at least help and only select the jurors that understand this, right? Because otherwise how would you render a decision about something that happened in the past that your opinion can't change? It either happened or it didn't happen. Right. And that's why, uh, that's the approach I took when yeah. I first was looking Which at Which is scripture. so
1: good. Uh, let, let's get some of the terminology down. Not all of us are familiar with police detective work. So, for example, you, you mentioned that you're a homicide detective, but you specialize in solving cold case, no body murders. Now, honestly, this is the first time I've heard that. Uh, describe a nobody murder. So I think no, I get it. <laughs> yeah. So a
2: nobody murder. Uh, often these will go cold because they are first uh, reported as a missing persons case. You know. So okay. this is like where a husband or a business associate. Usually, though, it's a husband or a, a wife who kills their spouse, and then somehow effectively destroys the body, and then says, "Oh, we had an argument, and they just vanished." And so you you never find the body. So, so you don't so, have a body. So Maybe got, not
1: even a murder weapon. Well, right? exactly.
2: You yeah. don't know. And but sometimes they're clever enough to wait three days, and they'll walk into like an in R station. They can walk into the front desk. So now you're not even calling a police officer to the location. You're walking into the front counter. You're filing a missing persons report. Two days later, it's assigned to a detective. Now we're a week behind this thing. Yeah. And you've had a week to clean the house, to do whatever you wanted to do. Right. And it's basically a lot harder to solve. And if you never find the body, you have the bigger challenge of, number one, demonstrating to a jury that this is a murder and not a true missing. Right. And then, number two, demonstrating that this is the guy who did the murder. So you have two – and a lot of DAs just don't want to touch these because they are difficult because there are two things you're trying to prove.
1: And the Cole case is a case that just hasn't been resolved. It could be years, 10 years, 20 years. Some we're hearing in the media now where 30-, 40-year-old cases are being solved with DNA
2: improvement. Well, and so every crime has a statute of limitations except for murder. So if you do a robbery and a number of years go by, I can't go back and reinvestigate that because it closes by statute. But murders don't close; they, they stay, stay open. open, and so my cases are like um we just did a case two years ago it was um nineteen seventy two I remember the case my dad had the case, mm-hmm. he was a homicide detective also, and he I remember I was about ten when this ten year old went missing huh and um it it shook our community, and my dad was kind of paranoid about it, you know yeah. because you know for his own kids, and so I remember the case, and we didn't well so I think I opened it in two thousand three. I think I found the DNA in 2006 or seven. We submitted it right away. It had no hit on the kind of predator database we have in California, and then uh, luckily, uh, Ancestry DNA. Started to emerge. It's helping to solve some problems. It's solving isn't it? some. That's why I always thank people for uh, searching yeah. for their family members with DNA because it eventually means I can take some of your family members to jail. Right. So, so
1: hopefully not, but who yes, knows? But that does know. It does
2: does help. Describe person of
1: interest. That's another term. I think I know what that means, but help us all better understand that legal term.
2: Yeah. So this is really something that I think emerged more after 9/11. You started to see a lot of it with the federal agencies looking at persons of interest in certain kinds of investigations. Almost always, this ends up being somebody who. You suspect is your candidate for the crime, but you just don't want to necessarily put the word suspect on him yet. But it could also be a witness. Maybe you're looking for. So we have no leads at all yet, but we did hear that there was somebody standing over here. That's a person of interest to us. We want to be able to interview that person. So it can sometimes be a witness. Yeah. But it just means that it's somebody who is another domino that's important to tip over in a series of dominoes leading to an arrest. Yeah. In that regard, you used
1: a methodology that you're trained in as a detective: fuse and. Follow. Out. Right. So describe that and how you applied that to this pursuit of, is
2: Jesus who he said he was? Yeah. So would, this is kind of like timelining, optimal timeline, different things to see, you know, is this guy, was he in town when this crime occurred? You know, you're, you're putting things in place in a timeline. But when we're in front of juries, This is where your weird background comes into play. So I was, my dad was a detective, but I didn't think I would be a detective. I I thought I would be an artist or an architect. And so I got my bachelor's degree in design and I got my master's degree in architecture at UCLA. And I was working in Santa Monica when I decided to leave that and work in my dad's profession. But when I got to doing jury trials, uh, that kind of approach, that visual approach to making claims kind of came back up. And so I know I needed to show timelines to jurors. So I just envision the missing on the day of the missing person, if this is a murder, that's a bomb that exploded. A, a angry he was angry, he did something he shouldn't do. But every bomb has a fuse that burns toward the explosion. And after the explosion there's fallout everywhere uh. all over the blast radius. So what we do in front of a jury is we visualize this fuse This is all the tension that's rising in the relationship. Over days, weeks, months. Yeah, he's preparing to do something he shouldn't do. He's buying the stuff he's going to use to kill her or to dispose of her. Yeah, this is the stuff you do before a crime. Mm -hmm. And then the day happens, and then you've got all of this activity afterwards. This is the blast radius, the fallout, that kind of gives you away. Because, you know, people don't do that. You're destroying your wife's property like you think she's never coming back. Well, what if she's just run off. Why would you destroy your property you, unless you know she's not coming back? Yep. So you kind of do things that tip the hat. And so that's what we're doing here in front of a jury. It's fuse and fallout, fuse and fallout. So what I've envisioned here is if there was no New Testament, no evidence in a crime scene, if I don't trust anything the New Testament tells me about Jesus, is there enough evidence in the fuse and fallout of history to show me what happened in the first century, even if I had nothing from the crime scene, if I had nothing... Hmm from the New Testament. Now, of course, I think that all the information about Jesus has to come from the New Testament, but I'm just taking an approach that should reflect what's in the New Testament if Jesus is who he said he was. Now, let me ask Hmm. this question, because some are probably thinking it. Why did you even come
1: up with this idea? I mean, what was happening? He said, "Ah, I wonder if I apply my detective skills to something that happened 2,000 years ago, if it would work." I mean, well,
2: what, what was the motivation? Well, mm-hmm. we got into this church. You know, my my wife thought, "Well, we've got kids now, and they're you know like six and eight, or it's five and seven. Should we?" raised them in the church. And I thought, mm, yeah, no, I mean, I I wasn't raised in the church. Um, and I turned out pretty well. Yeah, it's, of course, <laughs> can, we always think that, right? It. Oh, yeah, you know what I was going to say? I'm <laughs> going to say that for sure. But but so I thought, I don't really have a desire to, but I love my wife, and if you want to raise kids in the church, and she was kind of a cultural Catholic growing uh-huh. up. We didn't own a Bible, and she never read a Bible and never read a New Testament. We didn't understand what the gospel was. That wasn't part of our life. We you never really heard it said that way. Um, but we go to this church, she nagged me about it for about three years. Good for her. Well, good for her. Yeah. You know, <laughs> actually, Susie's the reason God has used Susie in my life in ways I can't even explain. So without her, I would be nowhere. But so she convinced me to go, and so I sat in church, and and the pastor said that Jesus was this. He said a lot of things, but the thing that stuck with me because I wasn't really interested in any of the other things. Right. But she he said that Jesus was the smartest man who ever lived, and so I thought, well, what's so smart about him? So I did buy a Bible. I bought a pew Bible, and I just wanted to read what jesus had to say not expect really expecting it to be more like proverbs right just like wisdom statements yeah not so much a narrative about from people who want me to believe that this sequence of events occurred in this order right occurred in this location at some point in history well what is this this is like supplemental reports in a cold case i mean i don't have access in cold cases i don't have access to the witnesses anymore they're dead right i don't often have access to the report writers Because those detectives are passed away. I mean, I got a case from 1972. Everyone was dead before I got there. When we actually solved that case, our suspect had been dead for 15 years. Wow. So this is an old case. So the question then becomes, well, how do you... How do you manage these cases? How yeah. do you how do you investigate these old cases? Well, so apply that, you
1: know, the, the fuse and fallout, for example. Apply that, what you learned in detective work, to Jesus. How did you apply that?
2: Well, so I thought, okay, I'm going to do both an inside-out and an outside-in approach. And so I did an inside-out approach. You know, how do we know that the Gospels are telling us something reliable? And I've written about that in a book called Cold Case Christianity. That mm-hmm. really is just applying the template for reliable eyewitnesses that we right. offer to jurors. And applying that to the gospel authors. And that showed me a lot. But I also thought, well, look, if Jesus is who you all think he is, are you really telling me that the only people who notice this are four writers in the first century? Wouldn't you expect that if he's the rock you think he is, when you throw him into the pond, there'd be some ripples, wouldn't there? I mean, it should be able to see this in the fallout of history. But having never been taught that, really, I didn't know what the impact of Jesus was in history. Um, I think this is true for a lot of young people. As a matter of fact, I think it's really important right now for us to teach our young people how important Jesus—look, I I think there's two questions that every young person asks now. So for every one what claim we make, we have to offer the two whys. So I always say you have to give two whys for every what to Gen Z. And the first why is, okay, so you're making this claim about Jesus. Well, why do you think that's true? On the basis of what evidence, because everybody else is going to say that their claim is grounded in science, is grounded in evidence, and you Christians have your wishful thinking. Not Good for you, but that's not good for me. So I want to know why is this true. And the second why is, why should I care? Even if it is true, why should I care? Yeah. So I think what I really wanted to know is, does this matter? Even if this is true, does this matter? I'm ready to answer that question. Right. I'm telling you okay. what.
1: That's the question. It, Why well, does th- it matter? Oh, yeah. Woo, that's a big one. Well, yeah. I
2: think right now, I think the Gen Z, for a matter of fact, are, not, are less concerned about what Jeff Myers of Summit Ministries here in Colorado Springs, Manitou Springs, you know, he we had talk, been talking about this. I think that young people are more concerned about the God, not the godness of God, does God exist, but the goodness of God. Mm-hmm. Does this book, this Iron Age book you folks always, t- you know, is the source of all misogyny, racism, homophobia, transphobia, you phobia you can think of, is this still good? Does this matter anymore? Does anything good emerge from this? Does anything beautiful hmm. emerge from this? Well, those are the kinds of questions I had too. And so this is what the outside in will tell you, because if the outcome, if the impact of Jesus is evil then why would you want to examine it? You can make claims about, uh, say for example, Nazism. Do I care if it's ugly to begin with? I, why would I, stop making your case, I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. Right. But if this is something that's is a source of all beauty, well then it might matter. Well, you know,
1: and one of the key things there is be cautious of what people label. That's like, right. you know, it doesn't mean it's Christianity because somebody says it is. That's right. It's
0: what's true. This Focus on the Family broadcast will continue in just a moment. They're getting bombarded from so many different directions that I would rather have them doing something in a faith-based background. Values you can trust for your children. And this is just reinforces what they're learning at church and makes things, I think, where they're going to grow up in the right way. Get Focus on the Family Clubhouse and Focus on the Family Clubhouse Junior Magazines at FocusOnTheFamily.com slash You know that situation your family's facing? It's okay to ask for professional help. Focus on the Family's Christian Counselors Network can confidentially point you to a trusted therapist near you. We've been connecting families to verified Christian counselors for more than 40 years. Find a way forward for your family at FocusOnTheFamily.com slash get help. That's FocusOnTheFamily.com slash get help. Thanks for listening to Focus on the Family. Let's resume now with the balance of today's programming. Uh, Jim, you point out
1: how uh, several significant developments in ancient history allowed for the incredible dissemination of the gospel and the exponential growth of Christianity. Start with the developments of language and writing, why that is so important at that moment.
2: Yeah. So a lot of the times when I'm investigating a fuse, I'm answering my own skeptical questions because I'm anticipating that the jury is probably going to have similarly skeptical questions. Uh So when I'm examining the fuse and history that leads up to the appearance of Jesus in the first century, I'm examining really my own skepticism. So I had a skepticism about a number of things, but one of them was just this question, if if Jesus really is God, why wouldn't he just come now when we've got social media and iPhones and we can, you know, so wouldn't it be a better time to come now? Like, why does he... He come when he comes, but it turns out that the uh, cultural shifts and the, the progress of culture and technology actually does mm-hmm. benefit the first century in terms of disseminating information historically. So, for example, you know, you don't, you can't really, if you can't express the, and articulate the detail of the Jesus story because you don't have the letters in place yet. You don't have an alphabet in place yet. Mm-hmm. If you're just using hieroglyphics to, for example, describe the Sermon on the Mount, well, good luck with that. Right, It's not gonna be easy to do, But but once you have an alphabet, An alphabet that's widely distributed across the entire region, Mm -hmm. like the Etruscan alphabet, which is adopted by Rome, and then as Rome conquers the known world, it exports the Etruscan alphabet. And you have, you know, uh, Koine Greek, which is being used by the Romans. You have have papyrus, which is much easier to transport than, so for example, clay tablets or, or stone. So these things emerge in time until by the time Rome is in power... And has organized, and roads are in place, there's a 200-year period of peace called the Pax Romana that occurs uh, and allows for the Roman Empire to spend money on things that we used to spend on war, it now began to spend on infrastructure, mm. like roads. Yeah, so 47,000 miles exactly. That caught my
1: attention. I it has no connected
2: all of these other empires, like the Persians also had great roads. But now the Roman Empire makes sure that all roads lead to Rome. That's not actually <laughs> one of the goals of, of the Roman Empire. And they even connected the Silk Road from China. So now you got access by way of. As a matter of fact, the very, if you read John's Reve- book of Revelation, there are a couple of churches that John is talking about in the first chapter that Paul planted by using roads that were not even available to Paul at the 100 years earlier because they were constructed by the Romans and allowed Paul into places where he could plant churches. So it turns out it's not just that Jesus appears, it's that the infrastructure is in place and the technology, the alphabet, the language is in place so that you can actually transmit the message of Jesus. To
1: spread the gospel. Yes, and this, this is what I would say.
2: And so the question becomes, Then would, well still wouldn't it be better to come now? But well, here's what I discovered. What I discovered is that, let's say we do this interview and we it's viewed by a million people. Well, they're not going to download it physically into a million computers. They're gonna view it online. And let's say that they saw a miracle occur in this video for some reason. Hmm. Well, I think we are the most distrusting, even claims about the news. We are so divided right. as, a, it's as a nation, so divided as a world that it, we're gonna say, well, who's saying that first? Well, I don't trust that person. So I don't trust that information. So we are very distrusting. And then when we see something that looks miraculous, Well, I've watched the Marvel superhero movies, too. Right. Everything looks miraculous. Do you trust anything anymore, you see? But more importantly, you're not downloading the video. Now, why that matters is that if you downloaded it to a million different geographic locations, it would be much harder to eradicate the information in the video. In other words, if the information about Jesus is on physical manuscripts in a million locations— now it's very hard to eradicate the message of Jesus because wow. I can't just flip the server off. So it turns out if you're going to come and you want to have lasting historical impact, you want to come at a time when, when information is disseminated materially, not mm-hmm. digitally. Yeah. Because number one, you don't trust digital information. We don't. And number yeah. two, you don't save digital information geographically. It's easy to eradicate. No, hmm. that's good. You, you also
1: mentioned... Uh, human beings being hardwired to believe in God. Uh, I think that, but I probably think it more so than before I became a Christian. But mm-hmm. why is that so self-evident as a detective?
2: Well, okay, so that's one of those uh, these three strands of the fuse that are burning up. One of them is the culture of Rome developing and taking charge of things and providing an infrastructure so the message can be communicated. The other is there's a spiritual fuse that it turns out that we are a, we are created in the image of God, so don't be surprised that we often think about God. And even today, polls have been taken. I think about 83% of all living humans believe in some form of theism or deism. And that's with an incredible secular headwind right oh, now. Absolutely. Think about that. And this is, these are studies being done by secular groups. As yeah. a matter of fact, a lot of the, the, the Ivy League schools that are mostly secular now have done this research and have discovered that, that really we are born with a default position of looking at creation, and inferring the existence of a creator. That's very natural for children to do. As a matter of fact, this is now kind of said that theism is kind of red in the bone according to these studies. I've kind of cited them in the book. So don't be surprised, this has always been the case, and even in antiquity. So here's what I would say as a skeptic, well, I hear a lot about this dying and rising savior named Jesus, but it seems to me he's just a copy of some other dying and rising Mm -hmm. saviors that he's stolen the story from. We see this a lot in Jesus' mythers, who will say that Jesus is not an original story and he never lived. He's just a recreation of prior mythologies. and they'll cite similarities between these prior mythologies. Well, that's a fuse that's burning toward the appearance of the first century, and I wanted to examine it. So, if you look and read through all the ancient mythologies, what you're going to discover is they have about 15 things in common, and it turns out those 15 things they have in common are all the things that humans naturally expect of deity. We think about God and we imagine certain things. Well, if he's God, he probably has power beyond ours. So we always, almost every God, for example, can do God things. <laughs> they can do supernatural miracles because we expect our gods to do supernatural miracles. Many of them appear supernaturally. Well, you we kind of expect that too. Ours does, right? Mm. Jesus appears supernaturally. Now, only broadly are these 15 attributes similar. In now, each of those In, in each of these. So I charted them all. And yeah. now, no deity, no mythology prior to Jesus has more than about 10 of these. Okay. And some have as few as six until you get to the first century. And then Jesus appears, possessing all 15 of the ancient expectations of deity. Hmm. Now, what's interesting about that is if you wanted to come and meet the expectations of the expectors, if the expected wants to meet the expectations of the expectors, Jesus does that. And Paul even talks about this. You know, you people are very religious. You even worship an unknown God here. Well, we're here to tell you that what you've imagined, we actually saw with our own eyes. Hmm. Right. And so he's comparing the myths of humans. Now, when I say myth, I mean the stories of deity to the myth written by God, as C.S. Lewis says. Not a fiction, but a claim about God that is from the mind of God, from the mind of poets and ancients and expectors to the mind of the expected. That's the difference in Jesus. And so you see that, yeah... He shows up at a time in history when the ancient groups, the vast majority of ancient myth worshipers are still worshiping the ancient myths with common expectations, and Jesus meets these. Mm -hmm. So all the similarities between Jesus and other deities, they're not that similar, first of all, I mean, just broadly similar, but they end up being evidence for Jesus, not an evidence against him.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, you put it in context like that, the exchange of Jesus with the woman at the well, I mean, you, you get a little sense of God's frustration there. Woman, I'm standing right in front I of know. you. I am the water.
2: <laughs> but what's great about it is that we share these expectations, and even the modern scientific and sociological experiments we're doing right now demonstrate that created beings have expectations of the creator it has been going on for thousands of years, mm-hmm. and Jesus meets most robustly All of those expectations, and that's not by coincidence. He is the only one in the history of anyone who claimed to be God who actually has all 15 of the characteristics. Like Buddha, for example, has 10. Right, no, that's a really
1: interesting observation Mm -hmm. that he
2: fulfilled even that. You know, right. mythology.
1: That's right. That Jesus is the fulfillment of all of He's the, he's of the actual it. reality yeah. that you've been imagining in parts and pieces. That's right. In all those expressions. That's so fascinating. And for our listeners and viewers, I want to make sure we recommend this wonderful book, mm-hmm. "Person of Interest: Why Jesus Still Matters in a World That Rejects the Bible." And as Jim mentioned a moment ago, I mean, the Gen Z, the Gen X, all of the uh, young folks today are really looking and prodding to see can this be true? Is it real? And we better get equipped to answer those questions and to give a good answer to those solid questions. And one way to do it is to read this wonderful resource.
0: Yeah, uh, get a copy of Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World That Rejects the Bible. Uh, we've got details for you when you call 800, the letter A in the word family, or stop by focusonthefamily.com slash broadcast. And
1: like we often say, if you can make a gift of any amount, if you could do it monthly, that's great. It helps us do ministry. But join in, uh, do ministry with us, and we'll send you a copy of the book as our way of saying thank you. Hmm.
0: Donate as you can when you call 800-the-letter-A-in-the-word-family and request your copy of the book by J. Warner Wallace, Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World That Rejects the Bible.
1: Jim, again, stick with us, and thanks
0: for being here today.
2: Thanks for having
0: me. I appreciate it. And thank you for joining us today for Focus on the Family. On behalf of Jim Daly and the entire team, I'm John Fuller inviting you back as we continue the conversation with Jay Warner Wallace and once again help you and your family thrive in Christ. listening to focus on the family's weekend broadcast we'll take a quick break and then return with the second half of this program for your family stay tuned i like to see her eyes light up and have her read some of the things to me fun your child will love focus on the family clubhouse and focus on the family clubhouse junior magazines they're filled with fun activities jokes and faith-based stories that will capture your child's heart and imagination it really is just a good age level for my kids. And that's exactly what I was looking for. And I'm so excited too, that it just focuses on the Lord. Learn more at focusonthefamily.com slash club radio.
2: If Jesus is who you all think he is, are you really telling me that the only people who noticed this are four riders in the first century? I mean, wouldn't you expect that if he's the rock you think he is, when you throw him into the pond, there'd be some ripples, wouldn't there? That's Detective J. Warner Wallace, and he's with us today asking
0: some really penetrating questions. Thanks for joining us today for Focus on the Family. Your host is Focus president and author Jim Daly, and I'm John Fuller. John, we had a great conversation
1: with Jim, J. Warner Wallace, who had some fascinating uh, perspectives about Christianity and why beliefs matter. Uh, As he shared last time, Jim was a sarcastic skeptic who had no interest in the Bible or God or faith. I love talking to people like that who Mm -hmm. did come to faith because it's so, the foundation is so rock bottom hard, you know, they'd gone through it. They denied it. And then they were convinced. Mm -hmm. Always fascinating people to talk to. And if you missed it last time, get the download or come to the website and make sure you hear it because I thought it was full of interesting insights. Mm -hmm. He also described a unique investigative methodology as a homicide detective Uh, really concentrating on cold cases where there was no body. Think of the difficulty in prosecuting Mm. that kind of crime. And he's applied those concepts that he learned in that field to the existence of Christ, something he called fuse and fallout, which are the events that lead up to the catastrophic uh, bomb the ordeal that occurs, and then all the fallout that is around it. Again, very interesting concept Mm -hmm. when you look at a guy from the first century and say, we're still talking about him today. That's a pretty big uh, fallout, right, Mm -hmm. that we still talk about Jesus and his meaning to history. Uh, Jim applies that methodology to Jesus's life, and uh, man,
0: I would just say, get a copy. Yeah, get a copy of the book, Person of Interest, written by J. Werner Wallace, and uh, we do have those here at the ministry. Check the website, focusonthefamily.com slash broadcast, or give us a call, 800, the letter A and the word family. Jim, welcome back. Thanks for having me. I appreciate
1: it. It was so good. I, I just love this area because there's so many good thoughts that you can give to a non believer to just make them think. Um, That was what I expressed last time, uh, you know, when I was in college and I came to this conclusion, I better read the word of God. I mean, reading these business books,
2: I'm preparing myself vocationally, but this is the most important book to read. Yeah, and I constantly will encounter people, and this is the skeptic in me, right? So I didn't have any Christians in my life growing up, that if you asked, and I still see this, if you ask people, why are you a Christian? The most popular answer I get is I was raised in the church. Somebody, my parents were believers. Somebody mm, raised me. That, that is the number one answer you'll get. The second most popular answer is uh, well, I've had an experience that demonstrated for me that Christianity was true. A prayer was answered. I had a certain uh, experience after reading scripture. Yet we believe as Christians that those other experiences do not actually point to the truth. Huh. So what I want to say is that we have a worldview that's grounded in an historical event. It's not grounded in the wisdom teaching of a prophet or the wisdom statements of an, an ancient sage. It's, of course, Jesus makes these statements, but it's grounded in the resurrection. If that didn't occur, none of this is true. Right. And that means we can test this in a way that other religious worldviews cannot test their claims. This is grounded in history. We ought to be able to say, yes, I was raised in the church, perhaps, or I've had an experience that demonstrates the you, but I was able to test that experience against what I can examine and know is true evidentially, because we're in that one place where we could do that. And by the way, I've got grown kids. Um, you know, one of my sons will tell you that there was a season in which he was kind of wandering, but because he knew and had been raised this way that he knew it was evidentially true, there's only so far you're going to go. Correct. It's kind of that rubber band theology, right? If you go too far with the rubber band and let go, it snaps, it hurts a little bit. If you go even further, it hurts even more. So if you can help your kids not stray too far right. because they know it's true and you can only do so much with what's true— well, that's where I think we can make a difference. Well, in our I, own kids. I love
1: that very point. It's mm-hmm. evidence based, it's history, there's uh, records both in the scripture, outside of the scripture, who Jesus was. That's right. And that kind of pulls us back. Uh, we have new viewers, new listeners today, Jim, so I want to recap a little bit on this idea of fuse and fallout. Mm-hmm. It's such a powerful concept. And for most of us who do not work as detectives, yeah. uh, it's helpful to hear how you apply what you learned in your vocation as a homicide detective to the truth claims of Christ. So give us that refresher on fuse
2: and fallout. Sure. If we've got a case where we've got no evidence in the crime scene, we have to make the case a different way. And I typically will tell jurors that we've got every case occurs in a timeline. There's a time before the crime and a time after the crime. And on the day of the crime, if it was a murder, instead of she just ran off, let's say, or she just vanished and she's out there somewhere living her life, well, then that is an explosive day. And that bomb was preceded by a fuse of tension that was rising until something Mm. happens bad. And then after that bomb explodes, you've got fallout and shrapnel all over the blast radius. Well, look, if you didn't have any information from the New Testament, if every New Testament, imagine this thought experiment where every New Testament had been successfully destroyed by some evil future regime. So I don't have a single manuscript or a single Bible. They're all been destroyed. It turns out from just the fuse and fallout of history, you can reconstruct in its entirety, the story of Jesus you could be saved with the information you would just get from the fuse and fallout so that even if every New Testament had been destroyed, this is the kind of impact that Jesus has. So there's a reason why we call this the first century, even though, yeah, guess right. what? It's not the first century, okay? Right. There was a bunch of centuries before the first century, but we keep on calling it the first century because something explosive happened. And the, what the explosive thing is, if I didn't know anything from Scripture— I could reconstruct what that was just from the fuse and fallout of history. Mm-hmm. So in that fallout uh, section,
1: cause we covered a lot of the fuse last time. So in the fallout of the investigation, where can we see how Jesus transformed our world in those remarkable ways? What's the
2: evidence? So I'm looking at two things. Number one is that, does he have outsized impact? Impact that makes sense only if he is who he said he was. In other words, he's either a fiction or he's a regular old sage in the first century, or he is the God of the universe stepping back into his creation. So the question is, am I going to see the kind of impact that makes sense of number three? the Only, only can be explained if he is God stepping into his creation. So that's what I wanted to know. So impact was number one. But number two is, Is his impact so dramatic and so unique that his story can be reconstructed from the impact? And I'm looking at those areas that were important to me as an atheist. Those are literature, art, music, education, and science. Those are the things that I thought were the most important (laughs) as an atheist. Now, there's a sixth category, which is world religions. Every other theistic worldview. It turns out Jesus has had so much impact on literature, art, music, education, science, and world religions that his story can be reconstructed from those aspects of our culture, even if every New Testament was destroyed. Mm-hmm. And that makes no sense at all, unless, of course, he is who he said he was. Yeah. What about the mm-hmm. skeptic that might say those were all manipulated things
1: from an emerging European? Perspective. Okay, so
2: that's a great question. You know, that
1: this was all forced on humanity by these people that were trying to shape and manipulate people. Yeah,
2: I I was that skeptic. That would have been my claim. Um, So, for example, one of these claims is made about, you know, the oversized impact of Christians, the Christian worldview in the sciences. People don't really understand that. But it turns out that the scientific revolution was dominantly Christian, and it's happening in Europe under Christendom. And let let me just add,
1: because I'd like your response to this, that mm -hmm. the basis there was they believed in God. God, and therefore they could know the universe that God has created. That was kind of their premise. Well, yeah, there's,
2: I think there's seven igniters there. We can. That's kind of yeah. another story. But yeah, part of it was that, number one, they believed in a singular, orderly, rational God right. that is distinct from his creation. If you're in a pantheon of disorderly, debaucherous gods that are constantly stealing your spouse and doing all kinds of drunken debauchery, why would you expect that the created order would be reasonable right. and rational? But we but, believe in an orderly, rational God that's not actually in creation as part of it, but is distinct from the creation he creates. The point is, on planet Earth, Europe is a small part of it. There were many more people who weren't living in Europe than were huh. on planet Earth. There were many more people who were not Christians than were. Why doesn't why don't the sciences catalyze and take off in Asia or in North Africa or in India or other places where cultures had impact? it happens under christendom in europe because the christian worldview acts as a catalyst for what was originally called natural philosophy mm. and then became called science and this is what you see as a matter of fact i traced all of this if you look at the scientists who founded their disciplines these are called the science fathers you know the father of modern astronomy the father of modern the father of quantum mechanics whatever it may be More fathers of scientific disciplines are Christ followers than all other groups combined. As a matter of fact, if you just look at the science fathers who also wrote about Jesus— you know the church fathers wrote about Jesus. You could reconstruct the story of Jesus from just the church fathers, but it turns out you can reconstruct more of the story of Jesus from the science fathers than you can from the church fathers. Hmm. And I think people just don't realize that it's not just that he had huge impact; is that his story can be reconstructed from the history of science. Yeah, I mean, again, the book is chock
1: full of these observations, which is why people need to get a copy. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me ask you this: um, you mentioned your father was a policeman, and you went into the arts and Into architecture. How did those disciplines help you as you kind of swerved back
2: into follow-up behind your dad as a detective? Well, I can tell you the first several years working in law enforcement, when I was in in the arts, Susie and I were together probably about 10 years. And I remember working in a firm in Santa Monica and just telling Susie, you know, I don't see us here. I don't see any other couples who are having families that are, you know, I had very conservative views about marriage and family even before I was a Christian and I just didn't see anyone like us there. Huh. So I, my dad, you know, this is a noble profession. It's a calling. And before I even knew what a calling was. So I followed him into law enforcement. I was 27. And I can tell you that um, for a long time, I struggled. I felt like I needed a creative outlet. I had no creative outlet. You know, I started a police band of of officers (laughs) playing bands. We played music for a while. And and then eventually, you know, because I was involved in architecture, I was constantly getting asked to draw the murder scenes before I was even assigned to homicide. Oh, interesting. So eventually, when I got to doing jury trials, I started to help the DA visualize this for jurors, which is why this fuse and fallout, that's a visual model we'll put on the screen yeah. for jurors to see how this works. That is always colored the way I look at these investigations. So here yeah. I wanted to look at the arts because it turns out that from the arts alone, every episode of the Gospels has been painted by an ancient or sculpted, or etched, or drawn by an ancient, so that the story of Jesus can be completely reconstructed from just the most ancient forms of art. Yeah. So you'd mm-hmm. have to destroy more than the New Testament to get rid of the story of Jesus. You'd have to destroy many, many buildings and surfaces in which that image has been imaged. Jesus is the most imaged character in all historical figures. And the reason why I think that is so, um, if you look at him, he changes based on culture. If you're Chinese, you're drawing Jesus as Chinese, probably. You're probably using an artistic language that is local to your, um, your nation, to your region. So if you look at, uh, say, Buddha, as he's imaged in China compared to India, compared to South America, he's imaged pretty much the same. Huh. But if you look at Jesus and how he's imaged in those three locations, he's he personal. looks radically different because he looks like the people group who sees him as their personal savior. Fascinating. And so that's why I think he, he inspires so many you artists. Know, the,
1: that fallout effect too, and you mentioned this and you're touching on it, all the arts, but also architecture. I mean, oh, you, you touch on that with yeah. the churches and what well, has been built. Well, you knew I was gonna have to do that given yeah, that you I had architectural <laughs> background. So, so yeah, but happens, talk about that. I mean, well, again, that fallout perspective. If Jesus never existed or he was a right. myth, man, you'd have to the ripple
2: effect that you mentioned at the top yeah. of the show. Well, you think about this. The arts needed a studio in which to develop, and, and many uh, Christians were artistically inspired. But if you think about how we first met in the adobe, or not adobe, but mud kind of constructed uh, small residential homes uh, in the Middle East, think about that. That was a dark cool. It was cooler because, you know, it was a hot environment, but they were dark, small environments. We had a desire as a group to reflect the nature of Jesus, who's not described as the dark, It's described as the light. We also had a desire to think about our salvation and the heavenly aspirations we have as a people group. And it turns out those two aspirations to reflect the light of Jesus and the heavenly aspirations of the gospel impacted the way we started to change our environments. And if you look at, say, for example, St. Peter's and Michelangelo's great dome there, you'll see that the engineering feat to create some of these spaces is pretty remarkable. But then we also needed to kind of make those walls lighter to allow light in so the kind of gothic movement in which the structure of churches is forced outward to allow for glass walls to come on the inside membrane Hmm. well that ends up creating spaces that are ridiculously beautiful but what is the effort here what's driving it is not just hey we want cool buildings what's driving it is that we want to reflect the space that reflects the light jesus as the light and our heavenly aspiration it's about the savior and salvation that drives the shaping of these spaces. And that drives an entire movement in architecture, and it continues to do that. Uh, But again, what is interesting of all the historical figures, who else has inspired more movements in the arts, literature, music, uh, education, and science than Jesus? If you think there's somebody else out there who's not only had the impact of inspiration, but also whose story can be reconstructed from this inspiration, tell me who that is. This Focus on the Family broadcast will continue
0: in just a moment.
2: Did you know nearly
0: 60% of American adults don't have a will in place? That's a big number. And not having a will can leave a heavy burden for family left behind. If you need a will but don't know where to begin, let Focus on the Family help. Download our resource, 15 Questions to Ask When Preparing a Will. It's our gift to you at FocusOnTheFamily.com slash PrepareMyWill. That's FocusOnTheFamily.com slash prepare my Will. Thanks for listening to Focus on the Family. Let's resume now with the balance of today's programming.
1: Jim, just to further that discussion on music, let's make sure we catch that. Because music is really interesting to me. Of course, Bach talked about the beauty, the orderliness of it, how it reflects God. I've heard others talk about it's a distinct attribute of human beings, that this is the creative source. This is what gives evidence that we're made in the image of God, that we're able to Create music and enjoy music. Mm-hmm. It's a really interesting concept. Speak to Jesus's impact on music a lot well, deeper.
2: Yeah, and think about it. that's a good point because we sing about the things we care about the most deeply. We sing about what we worship, and it moves people. It does, and it turns out from the very beginning, the Christian worldview has been a singing worldview. I mean, huh. Jesus sings a, a hymn at the Last Supper, right? That hymn is often thought to be one of the Psalms of David. Just, we've been singing the Psalms of David for like thousands of years. Okay, as a matter of fact, if all you had was the music sung in hymn form of the first 300 years of the common era. You could reconstruct the entire story of Jesus Ah. from just the songs we sing about him. You have to destroy more than the New Testament, but also the history of early music in the common era. And so Mm. we contributed not just to some great music, but also to the history of music making in a way that is really unparalleled. And this is because Christians wanted to sing. As a matter of fact, I did a search of all of the pop music, we have an entire Christian music industry, of course. Oh, yeah. But aside from the Christian music industry, there's the pop industry, the secular music industry. So I did a search of all the Rolling Stone database, the IMDb, the uh, Billboard magazine. Like, who are the top 100 artists in the last 150 years? Well, it turns out there's lists of these things. So I just the entire list. I put them together. It's about 160 artists, I would say 150, 160 artists. And I wrote about this in the book. Well, I looked at their personal catalog. All but two of these secular artists have sung about Jesus of Nazareth, all not always all but two. Now, the thing about that, that this cannot be said of any other person who claimed deity or any other religious leader or any other historical figure. No one has sung about anyone as much as they've sung about Jesus in the oddest, strangest places. Frank Zappa's got a song, I think, called Jesus Thinks You're a Jerk. I think it's kind of a funny name. It's not a, <laughs> it's not a, a positive song. It's a negative song. I mean, hmm. but the point is that it's a Jesus, reference. yeah, he's going to either infuriate you, inspire you, move you in some way, positively or negatively. You cannot get away from the influence of Jesus on music. Hmm. And so it's not just that, so I would say this, whatever you're listening to, if it's pop music, if it's country music, if it's hip hop, whatever it is, it's built on certain structural forms that are utterly dependent on Christians to invent them over the years so that today you have those structural forms in place so you can listen to the kind of music you like. Well, that's because Christians probably invented it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jim, when
1: we look at all the great people in human history, kings, queens, conquerors, explorers, inventors, philosophers, you know, and everybody else, what is your conclusion about their
2: impact on the world compared to the impact that Jesus had? Well, that's what's so remarkable about Jesus of Nazareth. It's really hard to explain because you know we're calling this the first century. And why are we calling it the first century? Well, I just challenge you to look at every significant figure in history who lived in the first century and go from as far east as you can to as far west. It's hard to go beyond a couple. Yeah, honestly, I I made a list. I put them in the book because I think most of you will look at it and go, I don't know any of these people because they had no impact on history the way that this guy, this sage from this small part of the Roman empire this guy who really had think about it three years. He he lives in a small he's born in a nowhere town, raised in another nowhere town, only moves about two hundred miles from start to finish. He only has three years to accomplish his mission. The people who are religious reject the people who are powerful are hunting him. Um, he people who say they love him end up denying or betraying him in some way. He's got no real established family of merit, no education you can think of that would really cause this. No kids to extend his legacy, no wife, no doesn't write a book, never leads a nation, never rules an army. This is the the guy who then eventually is falsely accused, brutally mocked, humiliated, executed, and they had to borrow a grave to bury him. Okay, this is the guy. Right. Uh, is that
1: the story I, you would write of a great conqueror. You would a great not. King? Ex- this is
2: so upside down in right. terms of what your expectations would be for someone like this. That if you take all of the leaders and I, I just get beyond the first century, look at every historic powerful leader in history. Ask yourself, who? has impacted literature, art, music, education, science, and world religion so deeply that his story can be reconstructed from those aspects of human culture. I'll wait, because you're not going to find anyone. It's Jesus of Nazareth. That to me is remarkably unexpected, but that's what would be true if he is who he said he was. Yeah. And
1: Jim, I mean, we're coming in, maybe only a couple of questions left. And one I really wanted to cover, especially for the person who's watching or listening that may be where you were at when you were 35, hard charging criminal, you know, investigator, all that. What was the tipping point? I mean, what opened your eyes to spiritual things versus the facts and nothing but the facts?
2: I always get asked that question. But see, here's what I do. In my cases, I'm working cumulative circumstantial cases. Now, that doesn't mean it's bad evidence. Circumstantial evidence is anything other than an eyewitness is called indirect evidence, circumstantial evidence. So even DNA is circumstantial. Fingerprints are circumstantial evidence. So I'm looking at cumulative cases. In other words, 80 things point to this guy. Yeah. It's this the weight. It's death by a thousand paper cuts, right? It is really that that one thing doesn't seem like much, but when you have 80 things pointing to this... So I get to a point examining what's in the New Testament, and then all of this impact outside the New Testament, where I finally said, okay, I I trust that the New Testament is telling me something true about Jesus, but that does not make you a Christian. I mean, the devils believe something is true about Jesus, but, you know, the demons believe this, but it doesn't mean they're Christ followers. Correct. So I always say it this way. Um, That took me about nine months, and there was no aha tipping point moment there, but I did get to the point where I told Susie, I said, I think this is telling me something true about Jesus, but I don't understand why God would have to die this way and come this way. Do you get that? And she's like, I don't get it either. So, okay, so here we are. We've already now vetted the New Testament. And I, I was examining it to see what it said about Jesus. What changed for me was when I started to read the New Testament to see what it said about me. Huh. That's mm-hmm. when you start to have the aha moments. right? Because it's reading through Romans. It's reading through 1 Corinthians. It's the spiritual man and the natural man, right? That no one has ever, you know, he really chases God. We all reject God. This is really what I realized that the Paul was talking about me. That's when you start having aha moments. So, if you will read, look, at some point I realized that that person he's describing who's in need of a savior, that describes me. Yeah. But because I'd already done the homework to know there was a savior, I was able to connect that dot pretty easily. Yeah. So, what I would say is this, and I wrote about this years ago. I used to work um, homicides, and I also worked officer-involved shootings. And I had an officer-involved shooting one night where we come out and we interview the officer who got involved in the shooting. He stops a car for a drunk driving. He gets the drunk driver out, and the drunk driver actually ends up wanting to kill the officer because he's on parole, and he does not want the officer to discover he's got a gun in his waistband. Right. So as he gets this guy out of the car, he the guy turns on the officer, and he's pointing the gun at the officer. He made a decision that night. He would rather kill the officer than go to jail. Right. The officer survived it. And he's now, I'm interviewing him. And he tells me that at that moment, he knew, I what am I going to do? I mean, it was a millisecond. I could jump, I could try to, he just said, you know what? I knew I was wearing my bulletproof vest. And I had seen that vest stop bullets in the range because we shoot at them. <laughs> and so I knew that it was going to hurt, but if I could just tense up my, mu- my muscles, I could take the first couple of rounds and get my gun out and return fire. So he stood there calmly, And eventually survived the shooting. Right. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. That's pretty harrowing, pretty courageous. But the reason why he was able to stand calmly in a difficult situation was because he already knew evidentially that that vest could stop the bullets. And if you know something is true evidentially, when you're in a tough spot, you will end up defaulting like muscle memory to what you know is evidentially true. And so I want my kids, as I raise them, I hope that they know that this is evidentially true. And you're going to have a tragedy. You're going to have a tough time. And you're going to be tempted to say, where's God in this? But if you know that this worldview can stop bullets, you will stand in the gunfight. Hmm. And so I think we have to uh, help our kids to understand that this is not just my wishful thinking or one of many options that will make your life better. Yeah. No, this is actually true, yeah. and it will stop bullets.
1: Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons I was so excited to talk to you. And again, it, it paralleled my experience in my twenties, just getting the head knowledge and the confidence that this was real. And then all the evidence that you've outlined uh, that I didn't have at the time, I wish I had your book, but um, you know, it just, it helps open your heart to the reality of God and yeah. that combination needs to happen. You can't just believe with your heart your yes, head it's has not to a be involved. Hero.
2: It's a both and for right. sure. And and so it's... I'm not against the experience. I just want this experience yeah. to be tested.
1: Right. And I just think that's the most powerful, I think of Paul that way. He was a brilliant man. It's kind of funny when he went to Mars Hill and they said, who is this babbler? And I'm thinking, man, he's one of the best communicators I've ever seen. I know, but isn't but it they interesting? they referred to him as a
2: babbler. Yes, but he was willing to engage people on Mars Hill. Right. This is what we have to be, realize that. Look, you ever notice that sometimes if in a dog yard, the most yappy dog is the Chihuahua, the quietest dog <laughs> is the Great Dane. <laughs> well, right. we happen to have the Great Dane worldviews, but we often end up sounding like Chihuahuas because we don't know how strong our worldview is. well that's... Not again, no, no, I don't get a lot of people are going to yeah, be no, no, well said. We
1: totally understand the point. So. Jim, this has been terrific. And yeah. I just hope, and I'm going to take a couple of copies home from my boys because I want them to read it, uh, Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World That Rejects the Bible. Get a copy. I mean, it, this will equip you to talk with people too. It'll give you lots of information about the reality of Jesus. And uh, I can't think of a, a better source outside of the scripture itself to support the, the truth claims of Christ and the impact mm. through uh, the fuse and fallout analogy that you can share with other people. So get a copy, uh, support us if you can monthly, that's great, or a one-time gift, and we'll send you the book as our way of saying thank you for joining us in ministry. And
0: uh, boy, I, I just don't know how else to say, get it. Mm. Donate as you can today by calling 800, the letter A in the word family, 800-232-6459, or stop by focusonthefamily.com slash broadcast.
1: Jim, again, thanks for being with us. I'm excited to meet you and to talk
0: with you. Let's keep that relationship going.
2: Thanks so much for having me. I can yeah. tell you, this has been such a blessing to me. Yeah.
0: Well, we're so glad you joined us today for Focus on the Family. On behalf of Jim Daly and the entire team, Thanks for joining us. I'm John Fuller, inviting you back next time as we once again help you and your family thrive in Christ.